invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are beginning in 1 Timothy 6 today, and it's really going to be, in one sense, a two-part sermon. Uh, I don't have it as a part one and a part two, but, but next week will, <clears throat> in a manner of speaking, kind of be the application of this week's sermon, or maybe just a broadening, if we want to call it that. We, we can't, we've come to understand throughout this series the primary focus of the book of 1 Timothy is the nature of the local church and specifically uh, the nature of church leadership and teaching. Church character, its function, this is found quite a bit as well. An emphasis upon those who are elders within the body, a topic which particularly dominates chapters 3 and chapters 5 as we talk about the qualifications of ministers, as we consider uh, the nature of the elders, uh, the honor to the elders who rule well, uh, the rebuke of the elders who are walking contrary to sound doctrine. But interspersed within all of this instruction about pastors are also instructions regarding just what it is a pastor is supposed to be teaching, right? We've seen a lot of that as well. So in chapter 1, Paul calls Timothy to teach sound doctrine and to reject teaching of those who were teachers of the law but understood that did not understand the believer's relationship to the law. They did not understand what they were saying or what they were affirming by their teaching, right? And then chapter 2, we saw that call into prayer and to submission within the context of the body. Men praying always for all things, specifically for those uh, in leadership over us, specifically for... for um, uh, kings and those in authority, and then giving way to women and their role of submission within the assembly. Chapter 3, of course, was the qualifications of ministers. Then in chapter 4, we saw the call for pastors to warn and prepare their people for the apostasy and the potential suffering that will characterize the last days. That exhortation that in the last days... In the latter times, some would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, thus compelling pastors to maintain a fervent uh, determination to preach sound doctrine, to help protect and prepare their people for the last day's apostasy and all of the lies and the hypocrisies of that time. Then, of course, chapter 5, we spoke of honoring uh, the, the minister and, and uh, of rebuking the minister when needed. We've taken a, a little bit of time off as it relates to these things. And this week we get back into 1 Timothy chapter 6, looking in verses 1 and 2 this morning. And, and while Paul sets his sights beyond just the church body as it relates to interaction, it's clear that Paul is still instructing a pastor regarding those things that he is to be teaching and shepherding his people into as it relates to the context of the local church. So as Paul exhorts Timothy to teach his flock... So too, I teach you this morning, exhorting you in that which Paul exhorted Timothy to relay to the church. And the topic of note for this week and next week is the topic of submission. It's a wonderful topic, particularly coming on the heels of a week where we kind of considered rebellion, right? And in many ways, these are contrasting one with another. You have the element of rebellion, and rebellion is a lack of submission. And submission is when you are yielding your rebellion and one's rebellious heart. And so this week we begin speaking of, of submission. Characteristically in, in the scriptures, the topic of submission one to another takes the form of the authoritative relationship between a wife and a husband 
or as we saw in chapter 2, of a woman to the assembly or to the church body. And I think that as it has been taught, perhaps the subject matter, which is both difficult and controversial for both men and women in our culture, inhibits our own capacity to truly understand the broader context of submission, and specifically, if I may say it this way, how wonderful submission can be. How tremendous submission can be. That's going to be the primary topic of next week's sermon. The Joy of Submission will be the title of it. We don't think of that, and I think our culture inhibits that. Even for those of us that understand we ought to submit and understand that there's a design, it's very difficult for us, be it because of uh, the nature of third-wave feminism today, or be it because of the very roots of this country, which is founded upon a revolution. We are a very independent people. We are a very, um, uh, not, not just independent as it relates to our form of government and politics, but independent as it relates to uh, uh, um, uh, our spirit, uh, the, the, the spirit of, of uh, adventure and the spirit of, of um, of entrepreneurship in this country uh, is, is just through the roof. And as it relates to these things, submission is not something that we do well <laughs> in this country. And we see submission as kind of a, a very negative thing. And yet, when the scriptures speak of submission, they don't speak of it in negative terms. Now, submission can be abused. Submission can be difficult. But I hope that as we go through the next couple of weeks and we consider submission outside of just that controversial context of wives submit to your own husbands or, or women submit to the body in that way, I hope that if we can understand submission outside of that context, and, and we'll bring it in in various application points as we talk about broader concepts of authority, that we can perhaps understand better the true joys of willing and unencumbered submission. If you have a willingness and a humility to receive this teaching with faith, it will, or perhaps it has already for some of you, fundamentally altered your life, your relationship to others, and your relationship to God. Because remember, the marriage relationship, ch our church relationships, and even as we're going to speak today specifically about the relationship between master and servant or master and slave, they are all intended in part to be a reflection of authority that has its fullest and highest realization in our direct relationship with the Lord. And so what we're learning is not just something that can help us within the context of our material temporal relationships, but as it relates to our spiritual relationship, our spiritual disposition with the Lord. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 1, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. We're talking here about this word servants, and the concept of the servant in the Bible is a concept that can take a, a nu numerous different ideas. It can be as simple as a day laborer, a person who has been hired on, and he is exchanging his time uh, for, uh, goods or, uh, for goods or services, for money, or for, for goods. 
It can be the idea that we would often call in Scripture the indentured servant, like we see throughout the Old Testament with the Jews. The idea that a person has um, effectively given his life over to a, a master for a time and he is fully under the, the, the authority of that master for a set period of time in order uh, for a particular reason. Sometimes it was because they got themselves into debt and they, they had no means by which to pay it off and so they, they in a manner of speaking sold themselves into servitude for a number of years to work off that debt uh, or, or be it um, being born into such a situation or uh, such. And it can go all the way to that concept of slavery the idea that you have absolutely no control over your own decisions and, and you are effectively uh, under the complete control of another, reminiscent of the kind of servitude that we think of when we think toward uh, those elements that were, were uh, in our country for several generations and indeed some centuries leading up to the modern era. And the Bible doesn't necessarily give a a note of distinguishment between these. We see in the Old Testament that God distinguishes between, say, the Jewish servant or the Jewish slave and then one who had just been brought, out, uh, brought from, from some conquering of some far-off land and that the Jewish servant, the indentured servant, had rights that other slaves did not because they were still Jewish, they were still God's people, they were still um, of the tribes of Israel. And yet we don't necessarily see a, a distinction in wordage. We simply see this word servant, doulos, slave. It's the same word in Greek, doulos. And so we don't necessarily need to, within the context of this exhortation, try to parse. Are we just talking about the guy who's hired himself out for the day? Or are we talking about the guy who's, uh, who, who has effectively uh, sold himself into some indentured servitude for a time? Or are we talking about the person who is actually born into the caste, the caste of, of, of the, the slave class, as it's found in, in various cultures and throughout various times in history? We don't necessarily need to parse that today. I don't think the Word of God is asking us to do so. Uh, the point of this is authoritative relationships, that there is a man who has direct authority over another, Generally speaking, as we step into this concept, we step into it within the idea of the employee-employer relationship within our, our time. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit more as we get toward application, the fact that, that the concept of slavery in the United States is, is one that, that is, is, has been dealt with, right? And we still see concepts, perhaps, of indentured servitude, and certainly we see concepts of, of, of hiring oneself out and all of that can fall within the context of this. So it's, it's relevant for today, particularly the principles as it relates to submission. So Paul speaks to Timothy in regard to those within the church who are servants and who are under the yoke. This word yoke is used six times in our New Testament. Five times it's translated yoke. One time it's translated balances or pair of balances. And what it would speak of is, is something that connects two other objects together. So in the idea of a pair of balances, it's found in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, it would actually be the arm that connects the two balances that that word is referencing as it speaks of the balances because it's a yoke that connects one measuring device to the other measuring device and that creates the balance. Uh, we often think of it 
as it would relate to oxen, right? That the oxen would be yoked to a plow and that would be their yoke or their burden and they are beasts of burden and they would be yoked to that plow and that as they walked, they would pull behind it that plow and it would till that, the field uh, as they were being asked to do. Uh, it's something which connects one thing to another and it speaks of those servants who are bound or obligated to a master, either culturally or economically. So we're talking about some measure of binding here, that there is a yoke that binds one person to another person. And in this case, we're not talking about fair and equal balances, right? We're talking about one person is bound to his master. He is obligated to his master in some way, shape or form so that he has a measure. He has lost a measure of personal freedom or personal volition as it relates to this other person who has a measure of authority over him economically or culturally. Now, as we think about this exhortation, that those servants that are under the yoke would count their masters worthy of all honor, let's take a moment to think about why this would be such a big deal specifically within the Christian church. And I'd like you to think about this with me. Regularly through both the Gospels and the Epistles, the Scriptures speak of sin and salvation within the context of bondage and liberty, right? We even spoke this morning in our Sunday school about how God had commanded the kings of Israel not to send their people to return to Egypt to get horses or anything of the like, and specifically because when we look at, at, at the picture of what Egypt is metaphorically in Scripture, it's a picture of sin, it's a picture of bondage, it's a picture of that place that God had redeemed them from, and you don't return to Egypt. This is why when the, the nation of Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness and they murmured and complained and said, oh, it was so much better for us back in Egypt. This was such a big deal because they had lived in bondage in Egypt and God had redeemed them from that bondage. And here they are uh, uh, complaining about what they have in the Lord and, and, and longing for that which they had from their days of bondage. Perhaps the most clear example of this exhortation in the New Testament, maybe not. Uh, there are some other really good ones as well, but a good example of this is found in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, where the Bible says this, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your member servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul speaks here of a tremendous release, a release from bondage, which, one who uh, which um, when one believes, he experiences. And then he calls for them to live within the determination of this mindset, whereby they experience a freedom from sin, and they're bound to liberty in Christ rather than to sin and to death. We were the servants of sin, but now we're the servants of righteousness. And as many of us as can testify firsthand of that blessed redemption, 
That blessed liberty which has been brought to our spirits, we ought to live in that liberty. That we're no longer under the bondage of guilt and of shame and of condemnation and of fear and of anger and of bitterness and of resentment or in intemperance. And this freedom from darkness, from the darkness of our own hearts into the light of life, this is a dramatic and a wonderful freedom. Perhaps you remember that day. Our young people, our second generation Christians, you were younger, maybe, maybe this is not as real to you. Those of you that were a little older when you accepted Christ or, or have come from a time of wandering, you, you, you understand the fullness of this. The, quite literally, the rewiring of one's thinking from a mindset of bondage to a mindset of liberty and understanding all of the implications. Now, imagine with me, you are that servant in this culture. You're in the church of Ephesus and you are, you're a servant. You're a slave. You have no power over your own decision-making process. You uh, live at the pleasure of someone else. And maybe it's all you've ever known. Maybe you were born into this. It's what your dad did. It's what his dad did. You, you know the yoke of bondage. Now imagine then Christ pours into that heart. And you knew the yoke of bondage physically and you're living under that yoke of bondage, but then you also had this bondage to your sin and you've been redeemed from that bondage of your sin. And you are now walking at liberty. You are now experiencing for the first time liberty from that bondage, liberty of spirit. And these servants walk into the church, imagine. This slave walks into the church and he's no longer a lesser in any way. He steps into that church. He steps among those people who are the body of Christ and he stands eye to eye with the businessmen and the politicians maybe even eye to eye with his own master. You see, because there's no Christian caste system, is there? You're not born into a Christian slavery or a Christian uh, 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 elite. There's no Christian caste system. Paul would teach in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now imagine that servant who has now tasted the blessedness of, of this gift of liberty. And he steps outside of the local church assembly and, and he steps back under that yoke. See, being freed from his sin does not de facto free a man from the bondage of his circumstances, right? Does not free a man from his, his, his economic or cultural duties. Imagine the potential for frustration, maybe even resentment that might build up in the heart of a man who must rest under the yoke of personal bondage after he has tasted the joys of liberty. Who enters into the church and finds himself a brother, a co-equal member of the body of Christ, of which all are important, of which all have a role to play, of which every one of us is a member in particular. And then he steps away from that Christian assembly, that culture, that subculture in Christ, and he enters back into the hierarchy of human order. 
And he enters back into the haves and the have-nots. And he enters into the leaders and the followers. And he enters into the higher and the lower. And he enters into the masters and the slaves. Imagine how difficult that would be. And carry that into this exhortation. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor. Now, naturally, this is not the first time that we have seen these words worthy and honor in the book of 1 Timothy, are they? This is the same language used to describe the honor that the church ought to give to the elders that rule well. That the elders that rule well are worthy of honor. Double honor, in fact, the scriptures say, especially them that labor in word and doctrine. This is the same language. This is, these are the same words. It's just one chapter later. With, the notable, with one notable exception. That the elders are not due this honor simply for existing, are they? Right? The elders are due this honor as they rule well. And we talked about that when we were there. That I am not entitled to honor from you just because I exist. And this elders that rule well, that's worthy of double honor, especially those that labor in word and doctrine, that is something that is effectively earned. And God's people place themselves under him and then they show him the honor that is due to him by virtue of the fact that they have chosen to place themselves under him. This is not the case in the master-slave relationship, is it? Much to the contrary, Paul says, you servants that find yourself under the yoke, most of them did not put themselves there. No statement of whether or not the master is worthy in the sense of he's acting worthy. Much to the contrary, he says, unlike the elder, which is really the only position of authority that we find in the word of God, which the believer is called to submit, that has any mention of that man's faithfulness or that man's character as a qualification for that submission or, or of honor. In this case, the slave, the servant, is called to reckon it so that my master is worthy of all honor. To determine to honor my master without any statement here of the master's worth. And this becomes all the more clear as we compare scripture with scripture. And the scriptures are somewhat extensive as it relates to the exhortation of servants and masters. So we find in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Notice there in verse 5, it, is, it says masters according to the flesh, right? So we're talking about earthly relationships. We're talking about culture. We're talking about economic. We're talking about those who are our masters temporally, physically in this world. He says, serve them with reverence and with singleness of heart, without a divided heart. As unto Christ. Verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. So we find the call to serve in singleness of heart and not to just go through the motions. Don't just serve with eye service. Don't just, oh, master's coming, get up and look like you're working, right? Or, uh, well, yeah, the master, uh, he, he I, I'm faithful to him, but, you know, he's got so much stuff that I can just skim off the top here and he'd never even notice. That's eye service, right? You're doing the work. He has nothing that he can pinpoint and say, I don't like that. 
and yet you're not serving in singleness of heart. You're not actually being loyal to him and his best interests. You're not serving in this manner of fear and trembling, reverence, right? And notice why. And it's in every verse here. Verse 5, as unto Christ. Verse 6, but as the servants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Why? Because Paul says, you know that your reward for doing this is not actually an earthly reward. It's not that your servant's going to give you a pat, uh, your master's going to give you a pat on the back. It's not that he's going to give you a good evaluation. It's not that he's going to give you a bonus or an extra day off. You do this because you know that you're actually serving the Lord by serving him. And when you fail to serve him in singleness of heart, when you fail to serve him with fear and trembling, when you fail to serve him not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servant of Christ, you're actually faltering not just in your service to this master, but in your service to Christ himself, who has called you unto this disposition of living. We know that the true reward for this submission is not rooted in response or reward from our earthly master, but rooted in the heavenly rewards that God gives to those who obey God's word in faith. We see it in Colossians as well. Colossians 3, 22 to 24. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart. There it is again, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that, the Lord shall that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. It couldn't be much clearer, could it? You serve your master as a proxy of your service to Christ. The way you do your job that your master has asked you to do is in relation to Christ, not in relation to him. You don't do a, do a good job so that you can get the, the raise. You don't do a good job so that you can get the promotion. You do a good job so that you can please Christ. Because he's called you to do that. Not with just eye service as men pleasers, but singleness of heart, fearing God. With a slightly elevated emphasis in Colossians upon the heavenly rewards that the Lord will give to them that obey in faith. We find it in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. Don't talk back. Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, faithfulness, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Titus, which contains many of the same exhortations as 1 Timothy, exhorts into the same thing, and we would understand that. Uh, Ephesians and Colossians are, have, have a very similar feel, and Titus and 1 Timothy have a very similar feel. We would expect that because of the context, right? 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, their pastoral epistles. Uh, Ephesians and, and Philippians and Colossians and Galatians, they're all prison epistles. So we would expect that. And the call is that they would obey their servants, their earthly, or their masters, their earthly authorities, would please them well, would not answer back against them, would not purloin. That's, the idea of purloining means holding something back or keeping something back. Keeping something back in effort. Keeping something back in, in uh, loyalty. But instead showing all faithfulness. And the reason he gives here is the same reason he gives in 1 Timothy. And we need to understand this reason. 
from a, from a, a uh, the, the Ephesians passage, the Colossians passage, give us an insight into the heavenly reason, which is that the Lord will reward you. Don't think that you're not going to get rewarded for this. You, you will. Maybe not on earth. Your master may kick you to the curb every single time. It doesn't, but the Lord will reward you. First Timothy and Titus give a different perspective, and that is this. Testimony. Sound doctrine. In Ephesians and Colossians, the exhortation is reward. In First Timothy and Titus, the exhortation is that when I fail to re reflect this attitude in my labor for my master, toward one that I am obligated to culturally or economically, I blaspheme sound doctrine. I fall short of a faithful testimony of the doctrine of God. We'll be back to 1 Timothy in a moment, but what did 1 Timothy chapter 6 say? That the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. That was the reason He gave. Finally, and perhaps most startlingly, we see an exhortation in Peter. All of these have been Paul. Maybe Paul was just the kind of guy that owned a bunch of slaves, so he's you know, busy about the work of getting them to fall in line. No, that's, of course, we wouldn't believe that anyway. The Word of God is inspired, but Peter writes it too. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. This is perhaps the most startling of these exhortations because while Paul gave no asterisk, there was no exception to the rule as it related to masters, Peter is the only one who explicitly says, by the way, I'm not just talking about when your masters treat you right. I'm talking about the ones that treat you wrong also. I'm not just talking about, okay, if you're good to me, then I'll be good to you. I've got a good master, so I'm going to give him faithfulness. That, that, that's, that's not that hard. To do. But what about when your master's terrible? What about when he's evil and you are obligated to him culturally or economically? So you purloin, right? You hold something back. You're not going to give all to him. Why, 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 would I, why would I pour myself into that man, that evil man, that unkind man? Paul says, or Peter says, not just to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. And again, he gives the same reason. Because you're not doing it for him. You're doing it for God. And to half-heartedly serve a froward master is to half-heartedly serve Christ in this endeavor. And then he reminds us that if you do well and you suffer for it, God will honor that. It's not that God's pleased. It's not that God wants that, but God will, God, God will reward that. God can bless that. It is not your duty, your right, your pleasure to get justice for things to be fair and equitable in this life. But do know this and know it confidently. God will bring justice. Things will be made right. And that's God's prerogative, not ours. It's not our prerogative in this life to be able to right every wrong, for everything to be perfectly balanced. 
It's not going to happen in this life, but God will make it happen one day, and that's his prerogative. That's his right. Leave it with him. Can you, do, you have, do you have the faith? Well, yes, of course, Pastor, I have the faith until you're under the froward master, right? Then what? Right? This is the legacy of the teaching that we find in the scriptures to this very point. And may I mention this? That's five passages we went to saying the same thing. Actually, six if you count 1 Timothy. That's more than any wives submit to your husband's passage. That's more than any wives, this is how you handle yourself in the church passage. That's more than children obey your parents' passages in the New Testament. And yet, of course, they all kind of flow into the same river, which is this, submission to authority, right? Those of us who rest under earthly authorities are called to submit to them. But more than just submit, we are called to count that master, regardless of their temperament or character, as worthy of our honor, of our fidelity, and of our effort. And this is a real faith proposition, isn't it? So much so that some of you, and I'm, I'm not saying this to be mean or judgmental or anything, but, but some of you perhaps have already kind of shut this message off in your heart. Some of you have so given into the, 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 the philosophy of the, of the world, even the philosophy as it relates to our desire within this age to have an equitable and a fair workforce, right? Our desire in this age to have people treated well at the job, that, that's all fine and, and good, but it is not our right, biblically speaking. It's not. And that's a hard thing for us in, in 2020 America to really wrap our heads around. You know, we, there's been a lot of battles over the last century on this front. I mean, child labor laws and unions and there have been a lot of equitable, uh, uh, equity fights as it relates to work environments and such. Know your rights. You see it in a poster, right? On every, you, have to, you have to sign the things. Know your rights. Know your, 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 your workers' rights. And, and yet, when we step into the scriptures, we see a different spirit. Now, again, again, we'll see in, in just a moment, and, and we're not going to overlook this, masters have an obligation too. But that obligation, my obligation to my master is not contingent upon his actions toward me any more than the master's obligation to his servant is contingent on how his servant acts toward him. These are, are not our obligations one to another. They're our obligations to Christ. Right? And so we live in a culture that sees submission as an as a ugly thing. Submission is a dirty word. And perhaps some of us have been caught up in this Convincing yourself that your happiness is bound in your material liberty rather than in your spiritual liberty. And insistent that your right to self-autonomy is so sacred that you will allow no doctrine to change your mind. And may I, may I tell you what you're doing spiritually when you do that? You're trading spiritual liberty for material liberty. When, when, when you take a philosophy of this world or an ideology of this world and you follow it at the expense of sound doctrine, not only is there a testimony problem, not only is there a loss of reward, but what you're doing is you are placing yourself into spiritual bondage for the sake of some material liberty. 
you are yielding the blessings of the spiritual for the vanity of the material. And, and it's never, ever worth it. It's never worth it. Never has been. Never will be. And if that is you, if, if you've kind of shut this off in your heart or you said, well, you know what, that's a bridge too far for me, Pastor. You're not, there's nothing you can say that's going to convince me to do what you're saying as it relates to my boss or as it relates to, to my authority. Well, then what you're, what you're experiencing right now, what, you're, what the Lord is showing you right now is the line where you've drawn your faith. This is, this is the, you're, you're hitting the wall of your faith here. And then you start to pray through that. We all come to those, don't we? You, you, you hear a doctrine and you know it and you believe it. But then when you see how your life is being lived, you recognize that your life is not consistent with sound doctrine. And yet you like your life and you don't really have any particular desire to change. And that's where you say, okay, this is a limit to my faith. This is where my faith and its growth has now hit a wall. It's time to start praying and asking the Lord to change my heart. It's time to start praying and asking the Lord to align me with him in this area because you can see now that that's, that, that, that's going to be a battleground for you. And that's okay. We all have them. It's just not okay to be okay with it. Right? Keep, keep working to progress through it. Because this doctrine could not be any more clear in the New Testament. And the warnings regarding the ramifications of ignorance or rebellion to these concepts are just as strong. First, as we considered in Ephesians and Colossians, there's a direct loss of heavenly reward if we live in rebellion in this way. And second, within our context, your rebellion, when you live in rebellion as it relates to your relationship to those who are in authority over you, you blaspheme the doctrine of God and the name of God. You hear someone yell, oh my God, on the street, and you recoil that someone has just taken the name of the Lord in vain. You hear someone use a euphemism such as gosh, and you think, oh, I wish they wouldn't skirt so close to the lines of that, uh, of, of that concept of taking the Lord's name in vain. But then you dishonor your employer, or you backbite, or you work half-heartedly in the job that you've been asked to do, and you don't think another thing about it, and yet... In reality, there's not an abundant amount of biblical context to support the idea that a simple exclamation is the essence of what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. But it is explicitly clear. It is stated explicitly that to serve an earthly authority that God has placed me under half-heartedly or in a manner that is not counting unto them all honor is to blaspheme the name of God and the doctrine of God. And by the way, this is not just about earthly masters, as we see it here. There is one other context within which this is found, and we'll, we'll come to that in just a moment. And what this context is going to show us is that this concept goes well beyond just master-slave. We live in one of the freest countries the world has ever known. We can certainly apply this teaching to the way we, we are treated by our employers or, or the way we treat our employers or the way we treat our employees if you're an employer. But the comparison goes well beyond that. And the other time where we see this warning against blaspheming the name of the Lord as it relates to submission is in Titus 2. 
And in Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says this. Speaking of women in the church, it says that they may teach the elder women, the context, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And so we see once again an authority relationship in Titus chapter 2. This time it's the husband-wife relationship where the elder women within the context of the church are to teach the younger women to deport themselves in a manner that is submissive to their husbands because in coming outside of that submission, it is not just that they're, that they're uh, disobeying, it's not just that they're going to lose the promise of the reward, but they are actually painting a testimony of blasphemy toward the word of God so that the people that are outside looking in their understanding and their regard for the, for the scriptures is lowered in their estimation by the testimony of those who fail to submit to earthly authorities and this is a big deal isn't it I mean when we think about the idea of blaspheming God's word right that, that's, that's a big big deal and yet the two times we find it mentioned are servants, obey your masters, wives, obey your husbands. And if we take this principle, these two ideas, servant, master, husband, wife, and we use careful and consistent biblical interpretation, we can go beyond just those explicit applications and rest with, within this principle. that if Jesus Christ is our authority and submitting to his authority by his own command is submitting to our earthly authorities, then to rebel against an earthly authority is, by direct application, to rebel against Christ's authority, to live in rebellion. And thus, it is a direct rebellion against the word of God to live in rebellion where scriptures have called us unto submission. And when we choose to live in rebellion, nevertheless, we give cause for the word of God to be scorned, derided, dismissed, and blasphemed among those that are without. We blaspheme the word of God. We blaspheme the testimony of Christ. And so we, we find that this applies to the master-slave relationship. It applies to the husband-wife relationship. Then it must, by application, also apply to parent-child relationship, mustn't it? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. If that is what Christ has commanded, and we have this, this God-given authoritative relationship, earthly authority relationship, which once again, like the master-slave relationship, does not have anything to do with whether your parents are, have earned it or are worthy of it, but you count your parents worthy of all honor because God has given them to you, Christ has commanded it, and in the same way, we recognize that Christ will reward you for your obedience. And then, it must then, by application, also apply to government and their citizens, right? Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. 
Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. All of these layers of authority naturally fall under this principle. And it is for us then by faith to submit to God's design. Because if you have the faith to receive it, that is where blessing is found. That is where a proper testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ is found. It's found in obedience to him. Paul then continues in verse 2. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Now, we have to be very careful in this verse with our pronoun antecedent agreement. The question here in the English is, is Paul telling the believing masters not to despise or think little of them that are believing slaves? Or is he telling the believing slave not to despise or think little of the believing master. Now, in any normal context, we would say, well, naturally, believing masters don't think little of your slaves because they're also believers because within the natural economy, it would be the master who would belittle his slave. But in this case, that's not what's going on here. The Greek is quite clear on this. The context is quite clear on this. Paul is not speaking to masters here. He's speaking to slaves, right? To servants. We're still in the context of believing servants. And the idea is that they should not disesteem their believing master. Why would they do such a thing? Well, think back with me to the beginning of, that, of, of our sermon and place yourself back into the scenario of a servant, an indentured servant, a slave who has just been saved. And now he has experienced this liberty of the spirit by which he understands himself to be a child of the living God. And he's free from the bondage of sin. And he's free from the bondage of the law. And he is tasting the blessings of liberty. And then he steps into the assembly of the believers and they treat him as an equal brother in Christ. How, how strange do you think that would be for, for someone who's lived their entire life under the yoke of slavery or bondage? That, that must have been very, very strange. And they don't, no one looks down on him because of his socioeconomic status. And he sits right next to that politician. And on the other side is that wealthy businessman and they're singing together, and they're studying together, and, and the slave gets up because he has something to say, and people stop and listen and regard him. And across that way, there's that famous physician, and they look at him, and they look him in the eye, and he doesn't have to turn his eyes down, like culture would demand of him when he's looking at one of his betters. And then he looks across the way, and there's his master, the one who has civil legal claim over his life, his time, his priorities, and his decisions. And this man looks across and he sees this believing master. And his master comes up to him and calls him a brother and extends to him the right hand of fellowship and looks him in the eye. And it's, it's a glorious thing. But none of this changes that fact that there's still a socioeconomic relationship here. 
And the temptation in the heart of the servant is to assume that, as we said before, a measure of resentment or indignance. To ask himself, well, if my master and I are one in Christ, and if there is no difference, and if he's no more of a man than I am, then what business does he have being my master? Right? And then they disesteem their master. They disesteem his authority because they're both children of God. And Paul warns against this attitude. Just because we are all one in Christ does not mean that there are not earthly echelons of authority. And those don't fall away simply because I'm a believer and you're a believer. Now in the church, in a manner of speaking, they do. But there's still a societal function, is there not? And he calls upon these believers, these believing servants, not to reduce the level of honor that they would show to their masters because they're a Christian. So that the, the scenario bef without this verse could literally be this, that a believing servant would go to his pagan unbelieving master and would show him all fidelity. But then the believing servant would go to his believing master and say, I'm not going to serve you. We're both brothers in Christ. And how imbalanced would that be, right? That you are literally doing worse by your brother in Christ than you're, do than, than, than you're doing by your by a pagan, simply because he's a brother in Christ. Paul is seeking to correct that idea here. And he says much to the contrary. Rather than saying, well, because you and I are both the same in Christ and there's neither bond nor free, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither male nor female, we're all one in Christ, then I'm just not going to listen to you anymore. He says much to the contrary, rejoice that you have the privilege and the opportunity to devote yourself to a brother in Christ. It's like a two for one. Not only are you pleasing the Lord, every day by going to your master and doing what is asked of you according to that which is expected. But I simultaneously get to spend my entire day serving a brother in Christ. How wonderful is that? And so he says, in doing so, because they are faithful and beloved, you can be a partaker of the benefit. You can be a partaker of the benefit that he is a brother in Christ. This final phrase is somewhat ambiguous. What benefit are they partakers? Some commentators say that they're both co-partakers of the benefits of the Christian faith. But the word is not here, uh, for blessing is not like a, a good deed, like you can be a partaker of those good deeds. Or, excuse me, it, it, it's not um, a spiritual blessing. It, it is a good deed, so let me clarify that. So when he says, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit, that word benefit there is not a word that speaks on a spiritual level. It's not the idea of a blessing or a spiritual context. It's they, th that, that um, they are partakers of the good deeds. It's a kind of a physical idea. To that end, it seems far more likely that what Paul is saying is that if a believing servant has a believing master, then that servant has the blessing of getting up every day and serving his brother in Christ with all of his heart. And his daily efforts to submit and to serve his master in singleness of heart, without purloining, without talking again, are being directed not just toward anybody, but toward a faithful brother in Christ, which should make the obligations easier and should make them all the more wonderful. A believing servant has the blessing of spending the length of his days serving another brother in Christ. And Paul says, don't despise that, embrace that. Now, this is as far as we're going to go in the text today, but for the sake of thoroughness, there's one more thing I want to mention. The text speaks nothing in regard to the way authorities are called to treat those under their authority. 
Masters, how they treat their slaves, and by extension, husbands, how you treat your wife, parents, how you treat your children, government, how they treat their citizens, although we did read about that. But God has laid these expectations out clearly, hasn't he? And often these exhortations are found together in the text. Not always, as we see here. And that for a very important reason, which we've already explored. The obligations of an authority toward those under him and the obligations of those under authority toward their authority are mutually exclusive. We say this with marriage all the time. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. It's a 100-100 proposition. I don't give my half and you give your half. I give 100% to you. You give 100% to me. You only give me 20%, I'm still giving 100. You're giving me 100 one day and I'm only giving you 20. That's the way it goes sometimes in marriage. But the proposition is I give my all to you regardless of how you react toward me because that's I'm serving Christ. And you're going to give your all toward me regardless of how I act toward you because you are not serving me except as an extension of how you're serving Christ. And the same is, is, is a reality in any relationship, in any authority relationship. When we stand before God and answer for how we responded to our parents' authority or our husband's authority or government's authority or our master's authority, there are no excuses. You can't simply say, well, I had a bad husband. Well, I had a bad master. Well, I had a bad government. Well, I had a bad parent. That's not a condition in the text. And the rewards on the day of judgment are those who have been in faith obeyed God. And this isn't always easy, but it is blessed. And now, each person's situation, being what they are, there are different manners of honor based upon different relationships, and we understand that we can't just across the board say this is how this works for every single relationship because each authority relationship, whether that's master, slave, husband, wife, is different, right? There's different levels of authority within each one and they're all within the context of those given authorities. Uh, the government does not necessarily have the right to breach my family authority as a parent. God has not given him that right. I don't, I don't necessarily have to submit to him if he's overstepping the bounds that government has given. Husband's authority, a employer's authority or a master's authority, they all have a, a realm of authority within which they operate. And it's only within the extent of that that we're obligated biblically. And when that realm of authority is breached, things change. Right? That's a, we've talked about it before. It's a different sermon for a different day. But remember that. So let's briefly consider as we close the other side of the coin. Ephesians chapter 6. We were there already. We continue. We saw servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto the Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Now we continue in verse nine. And ye masters do the same thing unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is their respective persons with him. In other words, every master knows that he is under God's authority. Every master serves God. Every master is under a master. And that master has told you to treat your servants well. So you do it. Because you're under authority too. Do good unto them. Take care of them. Love them. Care for them. 
We would expect it. We see a similar exhortation in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Right? Do right by your servants, because just as you have authority over them, you have an authority over you. And knowing how you desire your authority to act, your, those under your authority to act unto you, it would be wrong for you to do anything less. Knowing how you want God to treat you, it would be wrong for you to do any less to those that are under your authority. How dare I treat my employees, my servants, my children, my wife, how dare a government treat their citizens with disdain and contempt and yet desire that the Lord would treat them with mercy and love? Right? And that's the idea here. And so we see this concept go both ways. And we see it with parents. We see it with husbands. We know from Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6 these things to be so. I'm not going to draw out every single application of that. You can certainly chase those down if you'd like later. But for this week, allow me to simply end where I began, and we'll effectively apply this next week. Last week we considered rebellion. Nathaniel preached in the morning. I kind of piggybacked off of it in the evening in Hosea. The week before that, I exhorted you in our effectively a New Year's message unto teachability. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, choosing the better part in faith. And the question is, is that you today? In this area of your life, as it relates to submission, as it relates to rebellion, are you there? Are you sitting at the feet of Jesus? Do you have a mindset by which you are so eager to receive from the Lord the blessings and the honor, and you are so determined to, sh to reflect a good testimony unto the world around you as it relates to the name of God and the doctrines of God, that you are willing to submit as you've been called to submit for the sake of the Lord. And if you're not there, what's stopping that? What is it in your mind or your heart that has hindered you in that? And let's get that, let, let, let's start working on that. Do you have the faith to believe that if you position your heart, your thinking, your expectations to align with Christ, that this will be without controversy what is best for you in Christ? Are you willing to go where the scripture goes to set up that camp and to live right there, regardless of the perceived material or temporal consequences? And if you are, then receive this exhortation and compare your attitude toward authority against it. And again, if you aren't, you found that wall. Your faith has hit it. And it's time to start praying through that. Because this is a big deal in the scriptures. The scriptures speak to it many, many times. It matters. Let's make sure it matters to us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.